Father, I pray we continue on in praising you, continue our worship in you and how we respond to the word today. That um, as it's preached, I pray that you'd enable me to be filled with your spirit and, and say the things that you want to be said this morning. And that you would control both the words that go out and the reaction we have to it. Would you bless this time that we have? We thank you for your word and the guidance it gives us. Thank you for the book of Acts and showing us what the early church was like. May we learn from them. May we learn from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> oh, can I, can I have that bulletin real quick? Thank you. All right, uh, you have sermon notes in front of you. There, it's a yellow page. And considering it's tax season and I'm talking about evangelism today, I included a Great Commission exemption form in your bulletin for you. You can file this with the Lord, the Eternal Revenue Form 0002. And if you think you're exempt from the command to share your faith, to evangelize to all nations, uh, just submit this and you'll be told whether you are actually are qualified for an exemption or not. I just want to make sure you understand this form, you know. Uh, you have to mark with an X why you're qualifying for the exemption. Uh, the first one is I'm 100% disabled and I can't comply. Second one, I don't like this law. Third one, all my friends appear to have been exempted. I don't know how that's going to hold up, but, you know. I love this one. I need time to consider it, and I apply for a 30-year deferment. And then the next one is, having completed a 30-year deferment, I'm applying for an extension. Depending on your age range, you just check the appropriate one. Uh, I don't know any lost people. Uh, the next one, my ship sails, it should say from, not for Joppa, if you know your Jonah history. My ship sails from Joppa at 5 a.m. tomorrow. See how that works out. Uh, I've had no formal training. I suffer from halitosis. You know what that is? Bad breath. Okay. I'm still waiting for the perfect timing. You're, so so you're, you're going to share your faith, but you're waiting and waiting and waiting. Your mother told you to stay away from the highways and byways. That's a good word. I had difficulty communicating with young people, people from ethnic groups, people from my ethnic group, people who keep quoting Matthew 28 to me. And then last but not least, since I don't qualify as a child of God, it doesn't apply to me, and I realize I have another God. Okay, then you don't have to share, the, you don't have to share your faith if you don't have God as your Lord. All right, um, kind of want to say how I'm preaching today. Uh, this is kind of how I'm doing the sermon. This was kind of like a, it was quite, it was quite a thing this week to study for this, Acts 7 and 8, because I felt like all week I was missing the point, like I'm missing the point, and I'm, and I'm studying, and, I, and I'm drilling in deep, trying to figure this out, and it's like you're missing the point, you're missing the point. And then Friday, which I take off, the point hit me on Friday, you know, and it's like, I'm not even, you know, I'm not even like, it's on my mind, obviously, it's Friday, and I'm, I'm not thinking about ministry, but there it is, the point just, it just hits me, and so I write it down, like that's what it's going for, and then I started rereading Acts 7 and 8, and I, okay, okay, so, um, Here's where we're at. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to Acts 7, what I'm going to do this morning is, is do a little summarizing. And I'll call your attention to various points in the text. But we're covering a broad stroke here, 7 and 8. So I'm not going to be able to read the whole thing to you. But, but it's, it's great, and you, and you ought to go, and you ought to read it for yourself. It's, it's wonderful. But um, 
here's where we're at. Last week we saw that there were uh, there was a problem in the church. There were Hellenistic widows, Greek-speaking widows, and they were not being, it sounds like they were not being fed. The distribution of food was going out, and they were not being taken care of. And so what the church did was, what the apostles did was, they said, let's get seven guys full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, and let's give this task to them, and they will make sure the Hellenistic widows get fed. And so they picked seven guys, and we looked at those seven guys last week. Um, of the seven, there's a couple very notable ones that we know more about. One of them's named Philip. We'll talk about him today. And the other one's named Stephen. Now, Stephen is the first guy in Acts 7. So what Stephen does is, uh, he's helping with the widow problem, but, but then he's also, uh, he's doing signs and wonders. So, so he is performing miracles, and he's getting into conversations with Jewish people, and he's talking to them, and eventually these people that are talking to Stephen, they, they, they want to get rid of him. You know, they, they want to shut him up. And so what they do is they say, they, they go to the Jewish ruling council, and they say, this guy Stephen, he is blaspheming the temple. He's speaking against the temple. He's speaking against the law of Moses. And we've got to deal with this. In fact, he says things like, uh, he proclaims this Jesus who said, I, I, I will destroy this temple and in, in three days I'll raise it back up. You destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. He talks like that. We've got to stop this. You can't blaspheme the temple. And you can't blaspheme the law of Moses. So they haul Stephen in. And the interesting thing is, we are told... You know, they bring him in. This is, this is Acts uh, 7. And if you look at the verse right before Acts 7, he's about to give his defense for himself. Stephen's about to, to preach a sermon, if you will. And they say, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, now where have you seen, ever seen someone's face like the face of an angel before in the Bible? Who's the guy? Anybody? Moses! Moses! face was like the face of an angel. He spent time with the Lord. And when he came down from the mountain, it's like his face was glowing. And when he went to the tent of meeting, he would come out and his face was shining. And so the, the people said, looking at Stephen at that time, it was like his face was the face of an angel. So this is the sermon that Stephen preaches. And I'm not going to read it all or we're going to go really late today. But let me tell you what Stephen says. It goes like this. Stephen starts saying this. The God of glory... And I think it's wonderful that he uses the word glory because his face is shining from the glory. Stephen says, The God of glory called Abraham, our forefather, out into a new land. And Abraham followed him. And then he fast-forwards into Moses. Then he said, Hundreds of years later, uh, you've, got, um, you've got the people of Israel in Egypt. And the way that they got there is, you had Jacob and you had the son Joseph. You remember Joseph's brothers didn't like Joseph and they sold him into slavery and he worked for Potiphar. And then there was a great famine in the land and Joseph had worked his way up to be like second in command. And so Joseph's brothers and his father came to him eventually for food and they were fed. But then a new Pharaoh came and they didn't like Joseph and they didn't like the family. They didn't like the Israelites and they were enslaved. 400 years of slavery. And then Moses came along. And the interesting thing about Moses is that, that, that he came out of an Egyptian household. Remember, he was the baby in the basket in the Nile River, and, and, and Pharaoh's daughter found him and raised him to be their own. And he came into Israel, and he saw the plight of his people. He saw the slavery, and he starts interjecting himself like into 
conflicts with the Egyptians, conflicts with each other. And the people of Israel said, thanks but no thanks. We don't want you, Moses. We don't need you. So Moses left. Remember, he goes out and he's herding sheep. And, and then he meets God at the burning bush. And God says, go back and lead my people out. So Moses goes back. And he powerfully leads the children of Israel out of slavery. Amazing. And now they're in the wilderness. And what happens? The people grumble. They complain against Moses. When Moses is on the mountain, they fashion a golden calf. And they're worshiping the calf. And and they're just nothing but problems for Moses in the wilderness. And then he does something interesting. He's kind of done talking about Moses. And then he says, um, where are we at? We're at chapter 7. He starts talking about David. Now there's kings. Israel's growing as a nation. And there's kings coming out of Israel. and, and, And David's a king. And David wants to build a temple for God. Right? And and when you pick it up in um, verse 49 of chapter 7. So you got David. David's like, I want to build you a house. And, and, and he says in verse 48, The Most High doesn't dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And so Stephen's preaching history here. And he says, I just want you to notice. You say I'm blaspheming the temple. Uh, God doesn't need a temple. He doesn't live in a temple made by human hands. And then Stephen does this. And you you can argue and you can say, well, here's the application of Stephen's history lesson. Here's what he does. Was it smart? Was it not? It was spirit-inspired. So I'm guessing it was the right thing to say. Verse 51. Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your forefathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Including Moses, by the way. And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. When they heard these things, they were enraged and ground their teeth at him. And then you know what happens next. They take him out and they kill him. Now, what makes them so angry about this sermon? Can I just give you three of Stephen's points? We'll put them up here all at the same time. Stephen's main points. He says, Israel had always resisted the Holy Spirit and his prophets. You know, when Moses came on the scene, he was trying to lead people out of Israel, and they're grumbling, right? They're complaining. And it's like even when Moses leads them into the wilderness, they're, they're like, give us meat. Give us bread. Where's the water? You know, and, and they're always against Moses. And when Moses goes on the mountain, what do they do? Give us a golden calf. They're always resisting Moses. But Moses said, and Stephen says this, Moses said God would raise up a prophet like him for the people of Israel. And Israel, and everybody understood at that time, that's the Messiah. Who's the guy like Moses that's going to come one day? That's the Messiah. B, what Stephen is saying is, if you reject Jesus, and you did, you reject the law and the prophets. You've rejected the whole Old Testament. That's his point. <clears throat> if you reject Jesus, you reject that person, that prophet like Moses that's going to come, the Messiah. And you did reject him. And you did kill him. That's what you did. And then C, and this is the one that I, I didn't see it. The whole week I was thinking about this text, I, w- I was missing this. But it's right there. Stephen is retelling history 
And for some reason, he jumps from Moses to David. Why do you jump from Moses? You miss Samuel. You miss Saul. You miss other things in there. You miss the Joshua judges. You miss all that stuff, that good stuff in there. He jumps from Moses to David. And he makes a point. God doesn't dwell in houses made by men. Earth is God's home and heaven is his footstool. And then it hits me, and I hope it hits you, the point. The point. God's not about the temple, the, the physical temple. He's about his people who are now the temple of God. Now hold that thought for a second. We're the temple of God. Hold that thought. So what happens when they hear Stephen say all this? They're enraged, and this is what they do. This is the end of chapter uh, 7. It says in verse 55, He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. Stephen looks into heaven, and what does he see? He sees the glory of God. Here you go again. So they're mad at him about what he's saying, and he's blaspheming the temple, apparently, but he sees into the temple in heaven. Don't, get, don't lose that, okay? He sees into the temple of heaven. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What is Jesus doing at the right hand of God? The same thing he always does. He's ruling at the right hand of God. He's ruling over the earth. We talked about that two or three weeks ago. Jesus is ruling at the right hand of God, looking down at Stephen. Even as he's dying, Jesus is ruling. And Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped up their ears and rushed together at him. Let me me tell you why this is so infuriating. Because in the Jewish mind, the temple is the place where heaven meets earth. It's a physical structure, the temple. That's where heaven meets earth. That's where you go to meet with God. That's where the holy place is. That is, that is the closest you're going to get to heaven on earth is the temple. And now Stephen says he can see into the temple. And he can actually see Jesus. And they're enraged at him. And in 58, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Who's that sound like? It sounds like Jesus on the cross. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. Stephen, you've blasphemed the temple. No, I haven't. In fact, God doesn't dwell in a house made with human hands. Oh, really? Well, we're going to kill you now. Actually, I see heaven opened. I see the temple of God opened, and I see Jesus ruling up there. No, Stephen, you don't, and we're going to kill you now. And they take up rocks and they stone him. Stephen, the temple of the Holy Spirit is stoned to death. Stephen, with a face like an angel, like he spent time with the Lord, is killed. The point. And I missed it all week. This is the point. You are the temple of God. And God's temple is on the move. What happens after they stone him? Look at the next verse. Look at the next verse. Right after they stone him, uh, this is 8.1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The church scatters. 
When, when Stephen was killed, people said, run for it. And, and, and they left Jerusalem. And they went to different places in Judea. They went to, up north to Samaria. They, they scattered. And what's happening is the temple, the Jewish temple, is not the place where God is meeting with people. He's meeting with in us as He sends His Holy Spirit in us. So what do they do when they meet? What, what do they do when they get scattered? The Bible says here, and we'll look at it again. Um, here it is. Uh, verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the Word. The temple is on the move. I, I just want you to see how earth-shattering this is to a Jewish person. The temple is everything. You go to the temple and you worship. You make pilgrimages to the temple. That's where you go. Jerusalem is the location. And now what God is doing is He's put His Holy Spirit into people permanently. We're the temple. And then He sends persecution and the church scatters and they take the temple with them. And what that means is everywhere you go, that's our song, right, today? Um, everywhere you go, the temple is going with you. Everywhere you go is a worship service. Everywhere you go is an opportunity to bring Jesus into somebody's life. The temple was scattered. And it took me all week to see that. But I got there. It's okay, I got there. So, I'm very happy when you all invite people into this building. And people come in and they experience the worship of God, they experience preaching of God's Word, they experience the fellowship afterwards of people hanging out together. I love that. But if we could take that and set it on a shelf for a second, just, just for a second. Wherever you go, the church is there. And when this church empties this morning, and when you all go to your homes or wherever you're going after this, you're taking the church with you. The church is on the move. The temple is on the move. And when you're at work, that's the worship service on Monday. When you're with your friends in the evening, that's the worship service. That's the temple. It's right there. And when you're sitting with someone who's lost and doesn't know Christ, I'm so happy when you invite them into this place. That's great. But just the fact that a lost person is sitting next to you, that's them right next to the temple. Right next to you. That's the worship service. What did Jesus say? Um... When he talked to the Samaritan woman, he said, the Samaritan woman says, you Jews say you have to worship at the temple. We Samaritans say uh, we worship at Mount Gerizim. Who's right? And Jesus says, Does, that doesn't matter anymore. You worship in spirit and truth. It's not about a location. It's about you now. You worshiping in spirit and truth. The temple's on the move. So what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning then is kind of play this out a little bit. I want to talk about what gets the temple moving? What gets the temple talking? And I'm talking about you now. What gets you moving? What gets you talking? What are things that are catalysts for your evangelism? What's going on in Acts 8? So what I want to do is I want to use Acts 8 as kind of like application. The rest of my sermon is just application. I highly encourage you, go back sometime this week, read Acts 7, and just look for all of the subtle points Stephen is making in there. It's, it's beautiful what he does in Acts 7 in his big speech. So the church is scattered. Um, how did it scatter? What's going on here? I want to call your attention to right before it gets scattered, 
Um, <clears throat> verse 60 of chapter 7. What does Stephen pray? He says, Lord, and he says this loud so everybody can hear him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Who is the them? Well, it's the guys with rocks in their hands. That's who. Don't hold this sin against them. It's Saul who's approving of his execution. Lord, do not hold this sin against Saul. And in chapter 9, we see God do exactly that. Saul becomes a believer. So let's just say this. Number one, um, application point number one, the prayer of Stephen. Uh, The prayer of Stephen is, God, forgive him. It's a simple prayer. It's profound because he's being killed when he prays it. And, and, And I don't think, it doesn't have to be profound in your, it can be really simple in your life. God, forgive them. That person who's hurt me, God, forgive them. That lost person who doesn't get it and they're opposing me, God, forgive them. God, save them. That family member who we never seem to get along because we're just on death, God, forgive them. It's just a simple prayer and God, God can answer it in powerful ways. That's Saul right there. God, forgive him. He's killing me. In chapter 9, God forgives him. You ought to have people in your mind. You know, you might say, I'm a terrible speaker. I don't do evangelism well. Can you pray for people? Because that will spark your evangelism. Just praying for somebody you know. Don't tell me you don't know anybody. You know somebody that needs Christ. Just pray. Number two. Is the persecution of the saints. Acts 8 picks up with Philip's story. Philip and Stephen are like brothers in arms. You know, they're two of the seven that we looked at last week that helped the widows. Philip and Stephen. Stephen dies. Philip's left. And I can't imagine what you'd feel like if you're Philip. On the run, one of your friends has been killed, stoned to death. Family members are probably being threatened to be imprisoned by Saul. And so you go up to Samaria. They, the Bible always says down, but it's, all, it's elevation is what it means. You go up to Samaria and you start telling people. And this is the point. When, when people persecute the church, God uses that persecution to spread the gospel. The temple's on the move. God may use your worst day to produce someone else's best day. I mean, I mean do you see that? God may take what's happened to you, and it's been incredibly negative, it's been incredibly painful, and he will take that, and he will use that story, he will use that circumstance to lead someone else to him. And it's not that you need to share your incredibly painful thing with everybody and get up in church and and do that, but you may become close to somebody and you need to tell them what's happened to you and what God can do with that. God will use that. God loves using tragedies to lead people to Him. And He'll let you know if He wants you to do that. I mean, it might be you're not even in a place to talk about those things yet. That's okay. But some of you have experienced the joy of even tearfully sharing something that's happened and seeing a lost person say, I get it. 
you're worshiping this God who's allowed this thing to happen to you and He's still worthy of worship. I get it now. He's given you a joy that's deeper than that painful thing. I get it. God may use your worst day to bring about someone else's best day. Because I can't imagine being Philip and losing somebody that I've worked side by side with. But that's, that's Philip's worst day at that point, I, I, I imagine. And yet it sends into the Samaritans. Thirdly, third application point. Um, when Philip gets to Samaria, he meets this guy named Simon. And, and Philip is doing miracles in Samaria. Philip is casting out demons. Philip is healing people. But then chapter 8.13 says, but, and if there's a but, you know there's a reason why there's a but there. But there's a man named Simon. Simon had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, verse 10, and the least to the greatest, and they said, this man is the power of God that is called great. So this is what happens. There's a magician there named Simon. We're not told whether he's doing illusions. I happen to think he's probably using demonic power in some way. And the Samaritans are calling him the great power of God. Either they're saying he's from God and almost divine, or maybe they see him kind of like a Messiah figure. But Simon is doing these things and he comes in contact with Philip. And oh my goodness, he sees real power now. Philip is doing miracles and Simon's like, that is amazing. People are getting saved. And and, and Acts 8 says, Simon himself believed and was baptized. The magician believes and is baptized. And then something happens. Uh, They send Philip, seeing all these Samaritans believe in Jesus. And of course the ironic thing is, do they have to go back and worship in the Jewish temple? No. You know, they can worship right where they're at. They're Samaritans. They don't have to go anywhere. They are the temple now. It's beautiful. And so what Philip does is he sends word to the apostles in Jerusalem. Peter comes down, and and, and they're checking out what has happened, and they lay hands on the Samaritans, and then a second Pentecost happens. And we're not told what it looks like, but I'm guessing it's speaking in tongues. And the Samaritans receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Simon the magician sees this, the former magician. He sees this, and he says, I want to be able to do that. Can you give me power to lay my hands on somebody and make them speak in tongues? That would be power. I think I've seen that on TV maybe. You know, I want that power that I can just touch somebody and that just happens. And this is what Peter says. Oh, and Simon says, I'll pay, I'll pay you for it. I'll pay you for this power. You can imagine that goes over with Peter. Uh, this is what Peter says. Um, Verse 20, Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Uh, that's like saying, You and your money can go to you know where. Okay? I mean, that, that's, that's what Peter's saying. Um, it, it's not an easy word. Uh, he says, Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Holy cow. And Simon says, uh, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And that's kind of the end of Simon in his story right there. And so scholars love debating this. Pastors debate this. Was Simon really saved or not? 
when I was when I was first reading the text, I thought he's not saved. He thought he could buy the power of the Holy Spirit, you know. And then later, I'm thinking, well, this, the, the the word says he believed and was baptized. Maybe he's just a really really immature believer, which we all are when we come to Christ, aren't we? We all have stuff from our old past life that comes into play. But Luke doesn't help us with that question, does he? He doesn't really tell us Simon was really really saved or not. Uh, church history, church I should say, church tradition, maybe even legend, suggests that Simon went on to oppose the church. Maybe. I mean, it, it's, it's a little bit legend-like when we read about that stuff. I don't know. God knows. But the point is, I think the point Luke's making is actually one of the power of the Spirit. The Spirit works in Christ-exalting ways. He doesn't want to exalt Simon the magician. He doesn't want to exalt Peter the Apostle or Philip who's doing wonders. That's not the point. The point is Jesus. So when you talk to somebody, when you share your faith with somebody, you ought to look and see if the Holy Spirit already has fingerprints all over that person's life. Like you may be talking to them and they say, I've been thinking about this for a long time. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit working and moving. Do you hear that when you talk to people? And if they believe in Christ, if you're able to actually lead them to Christ, do you see the fruit from that? Do you see the lights go on? And now they have a... One time I, um, I saw various students come to Christ in youth ministry, but sometimes there were students who, it's like you just saw something extra. And I don't know if the other conversions were false. I can't speak to that. God knows. But I remember one young lady who came to Christ through the youth ministry, and I remember her coming up to me afterwards and saying, I just feel terrible because I'm coming to youth group every week and I don't know the Bible at all. I need to know the Bible. Can you recommend something to give me like an overview of all of it so I understand how it all fits together? And and, and I see that hunger, and I know that's the Holy Spirit producing that hunger in her. We had to look for that when we talked to people. We had to look for people who don't know Jesus yet but the Holy Spirit's been orchestrating things in their life, and now they're talking to you. The Spirit wants to exalt Christ. He doesn't want to exalt Simon the magician. Give you this power so I can lay hands on people. And they, When you see revivals happen, when you see church services that are very exciting, but it seems like they're all about a person, that's a problem, I think Acts 8 teaches us. That's a problem when it's about a guy and not about the Savior. Take some discernment. I don't always know myself, but I do know what the Holy Spirit wants to do is exalt Christ. Number four. Uh, Number four is the promptings of the Spirit. The next thing that happens right after this, Philip starts uh, traveling, and God says, I want you to go meet with this Ethiopian eunuch. It says in verse 26, The angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise, go to the south, to the road that goes down to Jerusalem to Gaza, This is a desert place. And so he meets this Ethiopian eunuch. And what he finds out is this eunuch was in Jerusalem and he wanted to worship God. And now he's reading Isaiah and he doesn't understand. And you see this verse 32 here. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before it, shearer was silent. So he opens not his mouth. And he doesn't understand what does Isaiah mean. He even says in verse 31, how can I understand unless someone guides me? This, this is a person seeking the Lord. And he doesn't understand what the Bible means and what this applies to. And I think 
the Bible doesn't tell us, Luke doesn't tell us exactly, is this a eunuch, like a true eunuch? Because if it is, if this guy is who we think he is, he probably couldn't even walk into the temple to worship God because he is a eunuch. He wouldn't be welcomed there. Think about that. He's not welcomed in the temple, and yet the temple comes to him. Okay, did you see? Do you see it? He can't go into the temple, but the temple can come to him. And Philip comes to him, and Philip explains Jesus to him, and he believes, and he rejoices, and he's baptized. The Holy Spirit is going to guide you, the temple, into significant spiritual conversations. Listen, every Sunday morning, we start worshiping at the same time. It's 9 a.m. But the Spirit's going to prompt you at all different times, in all different places. The worship service starts now. Talk about me. Worship's at, worship's at 10 o'clock when, when, when you're talking to your coworker and you see an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Worship is at the, the, the dinner table with your family who may not know Christ. It's at all times, in all places. The temples come to you. And so we need to be listening to those promptings. It's time for the worship service to start. Now's the time. Hear the Spirit tell you that and go with it and watch Him work. Number five, finally, the pondering of the seeker. You know, the thing about the Ethiopian eunuch is, he says, how can I understand the Bible unless somebody guides me? People need a guide. Many people are genuinely seeking the Lord, but they just don't have somebody in their life to help them find Him. You're that person. You're that person. And you'll never know if you don't start talking to Him and start asking Him, you've got to be that person to guide them. One of the reasons we have uh, we offer Rooted at this church is because we want to give people a place to, to, to find the Lord, to seek the Lord. Rooted's great because it covers a lot of the basics of the faith. So if you're older in the faith, you can take it. If you're younger in the faith, you can go through it. But what it gives you is kind of like this. How would I guide someone in the basics of the faith? How does that even work? we got to be the guides. If you know someone that's just come to Christ, you've got to be the one to invite them to breakfast. Let's go out once a week, twice a month. You've got to step into their life because they need a guide. Otherwise, they might end up like Simon. So excited. I see real power here. I want that power. Give me that power. I'll pay for it. No, you missed it. It was kind of cool that you saw the cool things God is doing, but it wasn't good that you thought you could buy it. Baby Christians need guides. I need a guide. We all need guides. But baby Christians especially need people in their life. Lost people need guides. You're the guide. May you listen to the Holy Spirit. And I, and I think that's, you know, as I come to the end of this and I think about these catalysts, these five catalysts that are moving the gospel out, moving the temple out, I think it all comes back to this. It's the Holy Spirit. It's all about the Holy Spirit. Like when, when I was teaching Fun Club this week and, and we talked about Jesus being the, the shepherd, right? And if one of the sheep goes astray, Jesus goes after that one sheep. And it's like, God, you use the church, but ultimately it's you that's doing all of this, aren't you? When I share my faith, it's because you're prompting me. When you save someone, it's your power. When persecution happens, when, when hard things happen, you're going to redeem that story. I can't redeem my own story. Only you can redeem my story. 
and use it for good. It's always about Him. God saves people, but He wants to invite us into the process. Let me pray for you. Worship team, come on up. Lord, we are Your people and the sheep of Your pasture. We are Your temple, the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. So send us out. Put us on the move. I pray in particular right now for those who are young in their faith. Maybe they haven't known you very long or maybe they just haven't grown very far yet. I pray that you would protect them from the mistakes of Simon the Magician, of seeing the power of God and just and just being excited about the gift and not the giver of the gift. May we be excited about you, the giver of all good things. May we worship you. May our faith be genuine before you. I don't know if Simon was saved or not, but I want to be. And we want to share that good news to the people you bring into our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.